Coming up today, Morgan explores the global trade in abortion pills and Matt Burgess investigates the strange case of the severed internet cable. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hey. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Russia threatened to pull out of the International Space Station and build its own station instead. The ISS is a collaborative project between five nations and has been in orbit since 1998. The US wants to keep it going until 2031, but as tensions rise over the war in Ukraine, Russia's space agency said a decision has been made to pull out of the ISS in 2024. This was also the week when Meta forecasted its first ever decline in revenue since it went public. It expects a third quarter revenue of $28.5 billion, which is lower than the $30.5 billion that analysts predicted. All of this is because of a declining economic downturn that has affected the digital advertising business. It was also the week when the Central African Republic started selling its national cryptocurrency, the Sango coin. CAR, which was the second country ever to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender, has received a lukewarm response to the coin. In the first three days, only $1.2 million of $21 million worth of coins had sold. And finally, this was the week when UK supermarket chain Southern Co-op faces a legal challenge for using facial recognition technology. 35 of its stores use private facial recognition systems to try and spot shoplifters, but a complaint has been made to the data regulator about the Orwellian technology. I didn't really think that Orwellian technology would arrive first at the co-op. So it's quite an interesting case, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, it is. And it's something that I think we reported on at Wired like at first a uh, couple of years mm. ago. And it's been sort of like the details around this case have been unraveling over the last couple of years. And essentially the company is using uh, a private facial recognition system uh, from a company which uh, links it up between other stores so the shop can create a sort of uh, a list of potential suspects that's then shared between all of the stores locally and the challenge around this comes around uh, whether the people should be on these lists or not uh, and really it's one of these first cases that we're going to see in the UK that is anything like this. We'll be keeping a close eye on it as always. Let's move on to fun facts of the week. Natasha would you like to go first? Yeah so I went to my local windmill museum which I don't know if you guys have one, but I do. <laughs> and I went in because it was free entry because yeah. of the Queen's Jubilee um, okay. a while ago. And I've kept this fact in my back pocket ever since. And the fact is, you know how windmills can have four sails, five sails, six sails, eight sails, even 12 sails? Well, you might be asking yourself, which is the most efficient type of windmill? And the answer is, it's a six sail windmill. That's right, I bet you didn't think about that. But the problem with six sail windmills and why they're so few, I think there's about five or six in operation, not in operation, sorry, in existence still, is because if one of the sails breaks, the entire windmill becomes completely unusable. Whereas if you have a, a sort of seven sail thing, you can still make it a six. It's like a balance thing. It's okay, off. that's quite interesting. You saved that at the end. I was like, this is the most boring fact on earth. But, um, <laughs> what else did they have at the windmill museum? Was it good? Well, so they also had facts about like the amount of decapitations that used to happen because of windmills. So apparently windmills used to be really close to the to the ground. So the sails would almost touch the ground. But the problem is bakers used to drink a lot and they used to like sort of stumble up to the windmill, forget that the sails were moving and that's it you know so I tried to look up like how many decapitations there were because of windmills because I thought 
well that would have been a better fact right yeah <laughs> however turbines wind turbines have like overtaken the deaths sort of statistics so they've wow. skewed it a bit well stay safe out there folks it's a terrifying time to be alive <laughs> uh, matt purgis what's your fact uh, mine's sort of safety related and uh death related as well i guess but actually doesn't involve much death any death in this case um so i learned that there is a british company called martin baker that makes ejection seats for fighter jets uh, and this company which has been around for uh, probably getting on nearly 100 years or so now um runs a club for people who have successfully used its seats ejecting from a plane and staying alive essentially um the club has more than six thousand members and if you uh join it uh then you get given a tie a certificate a membership card uh and either a pin or a brooch um as part of the uh, joining process that's how, quite fascinating how many people are in the unsuccessful club that's probably what well, that's definitely where the death comes into it but i don't think they have a club for people that don't, haven't like successfully ejected <laughs> ejected into the reef of the plane or something like that. yeah i don't really yeah i think it's just this uh just for people who have done it successfully but the all of the memorabilia uh or stuff that you get has a little uh its logo is like a red warning sign um which is like the universal sign for danger which i think I don't know. It's maybe a little bit underwhelming once you've done an ejection from a fighter jet, uh, probably going hundreds of miles an hour to get a tie. It's probably the only product in the world where if after you use the product, they are presented you with a badge saying, congratulations for not dying. You'd be, you wouldn't be like really worried. It's a good fact though, Matt. Thank you. Right. Let's move on to our first story this week. Natasha. Uh, so if you have been following the news, you will know that at the end of June, the US Supreme Court decided to overturn, uh, overturn Roe versus Wade, which meant that a lot of women in the United States were suddenly at the whim of their states to know if they had access to abortion and reproductive rights. Morgan has been looking into an underground abortion pill network that spans the globe uh, because this is a problem that isn't just a US problem but it's opening up a new market for this very very strange network of people that are trying to supply pills to women everywhere so Morgan can you tell us a bit more about like the journey a pill might take yeah well it turns out the journey is pretty long for some of these pills so for the story I spoke to one woman let's call her Jada which is not her real name but Jada found out she was pregnant at the start of July and like a lot of people who are facing an unwanted pregnancy her instant reaction was panic so she lives in Florida which is not a state where access to abortion is restricted as a result of the Supreme Court decision but it is a state where you cannot get abortion pills prescribed remotely using telehealth to see a doctor in person, Jada would have to wait two weeks for an appointment. That felt like a lifetime away, she told me. So instead, she started Googling buy abortion pills online. She ended up on this website called Abortion RX. The site was bright pink. It's illustrated with stock images of grinning women. But it basically promised to get the pills to Florida within eight days in exchange for $250. Jada looked around for Abortion RX reviews and found some on Reddit. The website looks a little sketchy, but they're legit, one pers per person had posted. That was enough for her, so she clicked order. By making the order on Abortion RX, Jada unwittingly became part of this cross-continent supply chain. So her order was processed by a website registered in Amsterdam, which then summoned pills that had been manufactured in India by a drug giant called Zydus. 
These pills were then shipped from India to an unknown location in the US where they sat waiting for a buyer. When Jada finally received her pills in Florida, they were posted in an unassuming small brown envelope. She said it looked like an Etsy delivery with a California return address. So Jada has joined basically thousands of other women who are looking to get a hold of abortion pills because they're running out of time to get treatment. But I suppose what this shows, the sort of journey that you showed for this pill alone, uh, it, it kind of goes through many different hands, many different people. She was looking at Reddit to see whether it was legitimate or not. How, how can people know if they're buying pills that are safe? Yeah, so you'd think ordering abortion pills off the internet would be pretty sketchy, but research so far shows it's actually quite reliable. So in the US, there's a website called Plan C, which basically acts as a directory of what they consider to be legit online pharmacies. Abortion RX is one of them. The woman who runs Plan C, someone called Eliza Wells, believes most of the abortion pills sold on these websites basically come from the shelves of ordinary pharmacies around the world, where they retail for as little as five dollars so basically her theory is that entrepreneurial middlemen then somehow buy the pills in bulk ship them into the u.s and then get a significant markup as a result and back in 2016 so this has been going on for a while eliza and plan c did some research into what these sites were selling exactly they bought abortion pills from 16 different websites sent them to a lab to be verified and surprisingly, well, surprisingly to them, what they found was that all of the pills they ordered were kind of genuine. So Eliza said when Plan C presented that research at the National Abortion Federation Conference later that spring, there was literally a gasp in the room from all these abortion providers because they couldn't believe that she had been so successful buying real abortion pills off the internet. And that's really interesting because you'd think if you're buying stuff from anonymous people online, very, very hard to track where these pills have come from. It would be quite easy for them to replace them with other kinds of medication, whether it's sort of ibuprofen or even, you know, paracetamol. No one would know the difference. And, you know, the women that are buying these things aren't necessarily going to be reporting it to the police, are they, um, in these circumstances? So, so I guess, you know, aside from what Plan C did a, a few years ago, there's not really like an FDA uh, approval of these medications right there's not anyone watching to see whether these are legitimate pills all the time or whether all of the suppliers are legitimate too right so uh, I guess is there is there anyone watching regularly to see what's going on Yes, yeah, so basically because FDA, America's drug regulator, isn't checking the quality of these products, that has fallen to plan C. So they're trying to make sure the quality of these websites, what they're selling, doesn't slip. And although they haven't sent any more pills away to the lab since that initial test in 2016, Eliza told me they are paying really close attention to customer complaints. So if she receives a complaint about a website or a product, she'll use mystery shoppers to test it herself. So recently, one example she gave was that she found out one website was selling the wrong number of pills in its abortion kits. So abortion pill packs are supposed to include one mifepristone tablet and four misoprostol. And in that case, she removed the website from Plan C's directory. So getting removed from Plan C's website is a big deal for these online pharmacies. So the man who runs that website that got removed, the website's called Medside24, and this guy calls himself Chris Jones, although that's not actually his real name, said most of his business comes from Plan C. So when Plan C took Medside24 off their directory, basically his orders ground to a halt. So this Chris Jones, who I find fascinating, you interviewed him for this piece, and he seemed 
like a really interesting character, right? He's not someone that necessarily is an expert in pills himself, right? He's not someone that necessarily um, has, you know, an interest in terms of ethical, <laughs> you know, an ethical interest in, in helping women. He's an entrepreneur, right? Uh, can you tell us a bit more about him and, and what his motivations were? Yeah, so I got the impression from speaking to Jones that he's an opportunist, that he is basically connecting his contacts. He's based in Kazakhstan and he's basically connecting the access he has to abortion pills in Kazakhstan to women who need them in the US. So he says that the the issue he had with Plan C is now rectified. Uh, he's back on the Plan C website and he's offering the correct number of pills. But compared to abortion R X, his website taps into a very different supply chain. So when I spoke to him, he said he gets his abortion pills from a Vietnamese manufacturer called Stella. He then gets those pills shipped to him in Kazakhstan, where he is based, and then he posts them to Texas, where he says most of his customers are. But a lot of these sites, they change all the time. Eliza from Plan C says often they disappear mysteriously, but they soon get replaced by others. One of the sites which is thought to be the biggest shipper of pills into the US is a charity called Aid Access, which is run by Dutch physician Rebecca Gompertz. So she says she also sources her pills from Indian pharmacies. But Aid Access is different because it offers pills for free if people can't afford to make a donation. And unlike the commercial websites, they try to offer an experience more like telehealth rather than sending you your pills and just leaving you to it. They sort of guide you through the abortion process a bit more closely. So aside from those random checks, a woman called Stella, who Chris Jones seems to have a lot of faith in, um, you don't really have anyone necessarily watching the quality of these these pills. And I want to I kind of touch on something that I mentioned earlier, which is obviously when things go wrong. Like a lot of these women are facing basically a, a, a situation that where time is of the essence, right? If you want to access, you know, uh, reproductive health um, sort of, you know, services, you have to do so really quickly. If you are in a state where abortion is banned or has severe restrictions you're running out of time if you want to have an abortion and so I, I kind of wonder here since the pills are being sent across the world if they don't get there in time or if they don't work what happens yeah so this is something that jada experienced um so because there's so little support with these commercial pharmacies when when she bought her pills from abortion rx she actually had a panic after taking them because she thought they didn't work so abortion pills basically replicate a miscarriage and she didn't believe there was enough blood to be sure that her pregnancy had ended so at that point the only place she had to turn to was reddit to ask other people what she should what she should do so i mean this is a consequence of the fda kind of appearing to be very hands-off with this network it's made soft attempts to shut these websites down it's issued a warning to aid access to stop shipping pills into the u.s and tried to order website hosting companies to stop hosting these online pharmacy websites but there seems to be a real unwillingness to really crack down on these sites but there's also an uncertainty that the fda could shut them down even if they wanted to these sites are based outside of its jurisdiction but without the fda 
investigating these pharmacies is basically down to researchers to keep an eye on how safe they are. So one study which looked at aid access and surveyed almost 3,000 people who used the site found that 96% of those people were able to end their pregnancies alone, meaning that they did not need to go to a doctor or hospital for extra assistance. So one of the study's authors, Abigail Aitken, told me that less than 1% of people reported having to receive treatment for a severe outcome, either a hemorrhage where they need to have a blood transfusion or an infection that would require antibiotics to treat it. So, I mean, when Jada struggle, struggled to get that support from, from anywhere else except Reddit, eventually she did get an appointment at Planned Parenthood and she found out that the pills she had used had in fact worked. Yeah, so this is a massive shame and I think it's sort of a, a problem that the FDA maybe would need to address in the future, right? It's, it's obvious from what we've seen and what we know that abortions will continue to happen it's about whether they are happening safely or, or not right and I think one of the easiest examples of how the FDA could probably intervene is a similar way to what people do in concerts and festivals where they have drug you know testing kits that are given to festival goers because they understand they will take drugs however they want to do it safely and similar things could be you know given quite easily to women to make sure that they're not putting something in their bodies they might be allergic to or that might not work or might be dangerous um, but, but that aside I mean this I know we've, we've sort of spoken about the US a lot here because of the recent news but this isn't just a US problem there are many places around the world where women's reproductive rights are in danger or have been non-existent um, so the people that you were speaking to for this piece have been operating for some time now because of the erosion of women's rights around the world. But one of the worrying things that people face when they try to engage in, in finding a solution and accessing these abortion pills is the cost of them, right? It's not cheap to get a hold of this medication. Yeah, so it really varies country to country. So in like in the UK where you can access abortion pills quite easily for free, the average cost in the US for this kind of appointment is $500. So that's why aid access, for example, has been popular in the US for ages, even before Roe versus Wade was overturned. So to give you an idea, between 2018 and 2020, 75% of aid access's clients said they were using the service because they couldn't find, they couldn't afford in-clinic care. So it's not it wasn't even about restrictions at that point, according to one study. But I feel like over the past two years, global supply chains have had a lot of attention for bottlenecks, so where one company carries too much importance. We had the chip crisis, for example, where a fire at one factory in Japan was enough to send shockwaves through the entire industry. But I feel like, by contrast, this story was actually kind of a globalization success story so the people I spoke to felt very protected by the fact this supply chain was so global it meant that at a time when women feel very distrustful of authorities in their own country they were able to rely on this overseas network to ship abortion pills to them and because of this network's very disparate nature I mean today we've spoken about India, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, Amsterdam those are just examples that we reference in this story so they felt that these pills and this network of pills was kind of untouchable, even though it's actually illegal to ship medication into the US in this way. It's a really, really interesting story. And I think that point about globalisation is such a good one, Morgan. I think, I mean, we've seen the, I guess it's getting harder and harder for countries, whether they're authoritarian governments or, or not, to kind of clamp down on what their citizens do because of the internet, because of globalisation, because of the ease of getting stuff shipped to you from, say, Kazakhstan. It's really changing the nature of the relationship between kind of drug regulators, governments, people. Yeah, and I think what is also interesting is you get the sense that 
the FDA doesn't really want to get involved. I mean, there aren't a lot of scare stories about this going terribly wrong. It feels to be something that is, it is an underground network, but it's kind of operating quite well, quite safely. There are organisations that are really keeping an eye on it and trying to protect it and making sure that women using it are protected. And so you get the sense that the authorities, at least in this administration of the, in the US, are kind of like, hands off, let's just let them get on with it. And I guess one of the reasons that, you know, the fact that all the pills that they tested in 2016 were real is kind of super interesting because I guess it, you know, what it's almost easier to do that than it would be to make a fake one, right? Yeah, and I really like that detail about the literal gasp in the conference and mm-hmm. how shocked people were by that because basically people are just using it as a quick, easy alternative. You don't have to wait weeks to see a person uh, get an appointment in person. It's a fascinating story that's probably only going to get more interesting as the ramifications of the overturn of Roe v. Wade kind of unfold in the US over the next months and years. And it's really worth checking out the story online as well because there's some great kind of data visualizations in there. Uh, so do check it out on wired.com. Our second story this week is about an unsolved mystery. We don't tend to think about the infrastructure that keeps us all online, but buried deep beneath your feet there is a network of cables, the backbone that keeps economies running and keeps your Instagram feed scrolling. Unless, of course, someone chops those wires in half. And that's exactly what happened in France in April in a strange and coordinated attack that Matt Burgess has been investigating. On April the 27th, an unknown individual or group deliberately cut uh, some crucial long-distance internet cables across multiple sites near Paris. The results of this plunged thousands of people into a connectivity blackout or void, and this vandalism was one of the most significant infrastructure attacks in France's history, and highlights the vulnerability of some of the key communications technologies that we all rely on today. Police are now investigating this attack, but several months later they haven't found out who did it yet. Um, And as we have found out, more companies were impacted by this attack than was initially reported. And some of the the ramifications go further than initially known. So over the last few weeks, I've been speaking with some of the telecoms insiders and network experts who are familiar with these attacks about exactly what happened, or at least what we know about them now. You used the word vandalism there, but that doesn't seem quite right to me because vandalism sort of implies of oh, some teenagers, you know, thought for a laugh they'd cut this big copper wire thing and see what happened. But actually it was much more organised than that and seemed to have been much more coordinated than that from the details that you found out. Yeah, so I think that's definitely the case that there is vandalism may not be the quite the right word for this but there definitely appears to be some coordination so when the attacks happened it was in the early hours of the morning on april 27th as i say and over the space of about two hours the cables were essentially surgically cut and damaged in three different locations to the north to the south and to the east of paris uh, including near disneyland paris um and those cables um Michael Combot, the managing director of the French Telecoms Federation, told me they were what they call backbone cables. They're essentially connecting networks uh, around Paris to other networks and locations around France. So that impacted the connectivity in several parts of France altogether. So as a result, internet connections dropped out for some people. Others experienced slower connections, including mobile networks uh, suffering some lag as well, as internet traffic was rerouted around several uh, 
of the severed cables. Essentially, the, the results of the attack weren't uh, hugely impactful in terms of taking thousands of people offline for a very long time, but they did definitely have an impact. And all three of these incidents are believed to have happened at roughly around the same time, and they were conducted in similar ways, which distinguishes them from other attacks against telecom towers and infinite infrastructure recently. It feels sort of like the kind of thing that might happen in like a heist movie. You know what I mean? Where they need to like bring an alarm system offline or something like that. And uh, they have to like cut the cables to do it. And then it gives them like a 10 minute window to like pull off the heist. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if in, you know, six months we discovered that on the night of April 27th, the Louvre was robbed or Disneyland Paris was ransacked and Mickey Mouse was replaced with a fiberglass replica or something. Um, <laughs> sorry for that tangent. Um, the people you um, spoke to said that this was one of the biggest attacks in, in recent memory. But what alarmed them the most was kind of this surgical coordination the way they were carried out because the cuts that were made to the wires weren't done in a way that made them easy to fix this was a attack that was designed to knock out the infrastructure for a certain amount of time yeah so i think you have to like take into consideration here sort of the overall sort of context of these attacks so these cables are primarily underground but every now and again they come above the surface in um in some ducts basically so there's like a steel grate over um the top of where these cables are housed underground um so whoever was uh, coordinating those attacks would have had to know where these ducts are and then been able to sort of get into them and the way that these cables were cut seem to uh, show that they intended to cause a lot of damage one uh, internet company ceo told me um so they say that two things uh, really stand out about the incident how the, the cables were severed and how the attacks happened in parallel so photos posted online by french internet company free 1337 uh, immediately after the attack showed that these ground level ducts which i was talking about were opened um which probably would have required undoing a lock of some sort and then the cables inside were cut in multiple places so it's not just like if you had uh, like a small cable that maybe connects a pair of headphones to uh, to an amplifier or something like that uh, and you had a pair of scissors cutting through them you're talking here about cables that are around sort of like uh, an inch in diam diameter potentially and have multiple different fibers within them so you would have had to cut through these with a pretty heavy piece of uh, machinery or equipment really probably something electrical it, it doesn't seem like it's the sort of thing that would have been done with like a pair uh, something that you could do under hu human power using your hands um but they were also cut in multiple places so there were like two different cuts within each piece of cable so essentially the best way to think about it is if there was a chunk of the cable missing so you've got two different cuts a bit in the middle missing um which really means that it's actually a lot harder to repair them because you've got to fuse five uh, to two different places so if it was just one cut you could rejoin those two parts together but with uh, two cuts you have to rejoin in two different places with a separate piece of cable so it's that one that is making this a little bit more organized and then also the other thing about this is that you would have had to know where these cables go where the ducks are these attacks were done at night they were done in the dark um, it's not something that somebody appears to have done just by chance or just by on a whim it seems like uh, the people that i spoke to said this that it was organized coordinated and done on purpose to cause some disruption i think my heist theory is a pretty good one but what do the authorities think has happened here who, what do they know about who was behind this 
So at present, there's very little information about who may have actually been behind these attacks. No groups or individuals have claimed any responsibility for the damage that was caused, and French police have not actually announced any arrests linked to the cuts so far. When we tried to speak to the Paris Public Prosecutor's Office, which is looking into this on behalf of one of the companies that was uh, impacted, they didn't respond to us, they they weren't open to an interview, and neither was the French cybersecurity agency that uh, has been looking into this as well. There was a report earlier in June from uh, CyberScoop, which is a security website that said that these attacks may be linked to radical ecologists who oppose digitalization in society. However, multiple people that I spoke to said that uh, they were skeptical about this suggestion because uh, of their experience of these kind of attacks. While they have seen some environmental groups behind them, they normally take credit for the attacks or do something that is quite visible. So if you were setting fire to a telecoms tower, uh, which uh, phone masks, all of those kinds of things, it's quite an obvious visual impact that they can then be reported whereas the only reason that we really saw any images of the damage that was done to these cables was because one internet company decided itself to publish photos so if that hadn't been the case then i think it probably would have flown a bit more under the radar at least outside of france as well yeah you mentioned telecoms towers which have been i guess the source of attacks because of 5g conspiracy theories and things like that after the covid pandemic started in early 2020 there was a big rise in attacks against 5g kind of equipment So I guess, could this be part of that? Could this be something to do with people thinking that the cables might be damaging their health or something like that? Yeah, so there's a bunch of theories that are swirling around this, but very little concrete information at the moment. So um, there has been some reporting in France around uh, environmental groups who do oppose digitalization and sort of on the radical end of uh, sort of their beliefs that there's been 140 different charted attacks that one environmental news website reported on and some of those may have links to environmental groups some of them not um but there is some sort of precedent for that sort of idea around this but as i say there's been nothing that has been sort of like nobody trying to claim this trying to get attention for their motives behind this which does lead you to sort of down this thought train of could it be Amit's heist or could it be something else that's that's linked to this or or could it just be an attack that was just created to cause some disruption at that time um for for maybe no specific purpose but just to take some businesses and stuff offline for a bit um we do know that over the last couple of years in france that there is there was a peak uh, earlier in 2020 and the fir- the earlier part of the pandemic of attacks against um against telecoms equipment um but those apparently have decreased now uh i've sold that in the last three months there's been an estimated 75 attacks against telecom networks in france and, and many of those got different sort of motivations uh, behind them and i guess those attacks are kind of like different they're like people you know shouting at broadband engineers and setting fire to like 5g towers or smashing them up they're not like sophisticated and organized in the same way that this attack was i guess what this highlights is that you know, we kind of think of the internet as this ephemeral sort of thing that just sort of happens around us, but it's actually quite grounded in infrastructure. And, and given how important it is to the economies of most nations at this point, is there enough being done to protect this infrastructure? You know, could, an, could a, a bigger coordinated attack like the one we saw in Paris have brought everything crashing down for a lot longer? I think that that's quite unlikely based on sort of just the way that the internet works. Like it is at its simplest level, it is a series of different networks that are connected to other networks and with this incident in particular while it did have some issues for people's connectivity and stuff like that in the short term a lot of the repairs and all the work was done to uh, actually fix these cables within sort of like a day or 10 to 12 hours after after it started and 
while there were some initial impacts uh, to connectivity, like a lot of the traffic that was impacted by this was sort of rerouted around different parts of the network and through different areas. And the companies that I speak to about this really have been saying as well that a lot of the times when we see issues with attacks or incidents on the internet that impact connectivity, they're more often than not sort of environmental things. So an earthquake causing damage or uh, a cable at the bottom of the sea being being cut or severed for various different like environmental reasons or a ship dragging its anchor across the the sea um, and those types of things against bigger like cross-border uh, cables and systems can cause more uh, more damage and knock people offline for longer but it's unlikely that there will be that sort of coordinated attack against something that is so crucial at such a one individual point and the the real sort of key to all of this is in introducing more resilience to the network more cables where stuff can be rerouted if there are choke points around sort of various places around sort of like around egypt there is a, a that's a bit of a point where a lot of cables go through and there's not a huge amount of different alternative routes like introducing other routes around them uh, is is a way to just help keep overall the internet online more generally so coming back to this case in france what happens i mean we don't know who did it we don't know why they did it so what happens next yeah so that's one that obviously all the damage and stuff has been repaired and everything is working normally and stuff now um the companies that are involved are saying that essentially they want to uh increase the sort of like protections around their networks and their systems a little bit more after this kind of attacks and i think that they say that it's like there are some simple things that they can do on local sites such as in, it's securing uh, securing more sites with better fencing and installing cameras and all of those types of things that could detect if somebody else is around there because a lot of these points in france in particular are quite rural therefore they they can follow sort of other pieces of infrastructure like highways and stuff like that so there are ways that you could introduce some physical security measures that could help to actually sort of stop people getting into these systems um so i think that that's where this goes low next and sort of like they will be building up some more cables across different routes in france and stuff as well but um yeah it seems like there are some pretty like not simple but some straightforward things that they can do immediately to protect like something very similar from happening again absolutely do check out the story on wide.com and let us know what you think on podcast at wide.co.uk also do let us know if you would like to join my team for the heist i'm planning because we've got seven spots left and we really are in desperate need of a getaway driver podcast at wired.co.uk uh, in the meantime, we've got some feedback, which Natasha is going to talk us through. Yeah, so we got some feedback from Linda from Melbourne. Um, she says, how wonderful to hear that Natasha has a love of trains. Me too, which is so sweet. So I spoke about trains uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, about the Necropolis uh, railway that used to go from Waterloo to the outskirts to take all of the dead people in the Victorian times uh, for, I think it was a shilling a corpse um so she says you would love to hear that there's a beautiful still standing funeral train station in sydney australia when you catch trains in and out of central station you pass it and occasionally it's part of art festivals she sent a link and actually i checked it out and it's absolutely beautiful you can see the sort of neo-gothic victorian style cherubs on the tunnels it's it's absolutely stunning um and i've got a fact for linda an additional Ooh. train fact Exciting. which i feel will tap into a demographic of ours i don't know anyway have you heard of ghost trains because i learned about this the other day these are these are the trains that run on like weird timetables is that right no oh uh, or maybe it is i don't know Go on. all right so they're, they're basically trains that have been watched by train spotters for a long long time because you can't book a ticket on them 
you can't get on them in any station and there's certain stations that apparently don't exist and national rail kind of refuses to say why um they just run empty randomly um at random times and they keep on trying to spot them so there's this there's this station which i've written down which is snaith station which is at the center of a bbc 2015 investigation where you can't book a ticket there it's in east yorkshire um you can't book a ticket you can't get on a train but there's several trains that pass by and everyone's like why so i was gonna say if anyone that listens to our podcast knows of any ghost trains or knows why ghost trains exist I'm intrigued. Or if you've seen a ghost on a train, alternatively, if you want to <laughs> yeah. interpret it that Actually, way. Let's just broaden it out. If you've seen a ghost, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, more, more train enthusiasts are very welcome on the podcast listening front, for sure. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Natasha. That's about all we've got time for this week. We will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.